do please take a seat. And you can turn with me in your Bibles to, to Daniel chapter 1. Uh, that's on page 690 of the Church Bibles. It's also printed in your service sheets uh, if, you, if you just want to turn there. But Daniel uh, chapter 1, we're beginning a new series. I'm, I'm quite excited about it. Um, I think it's, it's, it's going to be uh, a really exciting uh, few weeks through Daniel. And we're going to stay in Daniel all the way up till we take our, our break uh, in August uh, from, from the evening service. Uh, just during the month of August. Uh, the weather's just so nice. People have things on. Um, we'll have some other things that we'll do as a church family together on Sunday evenings during August. But uh, Daniel Daniel 1, um, the thing about Daniel, uh, as I was growing up, Daniel was sort of this, this odd book that half of it, as you'll, you'll see in a few weeks' time, the, the second half is no one kind of knows what's going on there. Uh, Except me, I'll, I'll explain it to you, don't worry. Uh, and then the first half, you have kind of these amazing stories. Um, and no one's really sure what, what to do with them all. Uh, but they actually all fit together as a whole. There's, it's almost like a, uh, a spiral staircase. Uh, you've got all these things that are kind of working around a central theme. And that's, that's actually the, the faithfulness of God in exile. I think, I think the church uh, in this country and, and certainly in America... Uh, for a long time, uh, hasn't felt the uh, the strains and the the pressures that you feel uh, in Daniel. But I, I think what we're we're seeing more and more in our world is is actually that we are uh, God's people in exile, similar to Daniel uh, and his friends, as we'll see tonight. So Daniel uh, chapter one. I, I should also note. Uh, in part for the recording, but but whenever I start a series, I like to mention that um, this this was written about 600 years before Jesus came, so it's it's been around for 2,600 years or more. Um, and the the thing about that, what that means is, I have absolutely no original thoughts for you uh, at any point in this series. So uh, I, I'm depending on on some some really uh, great biblical minds, men like John Calvin. Uh, historically, um, Sinclair Ferguson has a great uh, commentary. Ian Duguid, uh, who's a, a friend of this congregation, uh, and and some others. So if if you ever pick up one of those commentaries and you go, this sounds like something Rob said. Uh, you know, yes, I I did say that, but it was their thoughts first, probably. So just just to make that really clear, uh, that way also I don't have to feel like I need to cite them every time, uh, unless it's a direct quote uh, in the sermon. So, all of that out of the way, Daniel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, and reading the first 21 verses tonight. In the third reign of the year, excuse me, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank, they were to be educated for three years, 
and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh, than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and amongst all of them, None was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forevermore. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? That's the the question that was asked by by God's people as they were were being taken off into captivity in Babylon. Uh, It's actually recorded in in Psalm 137. Listen actually to verses 1 through 4 of that psalm. It says this, "By By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres. For there are captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? It's one of the most heartbreaking psalms, I think, in in all of Scripture. You hear it at the the brokenhearted being taunted by their captors as they're, they're being taken off to a foreign land. And what I want to suggest to us this evening is that this actually ought to be the question on, on each of our minds and our hearts as we, as we begin to look at Daniel. And I think as we, we look at Daniel, we're going to begin to hear the answer to this question. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? The reason I want us to, to look at Daniel, this, this ancient book that was written so long ago, is be, not because it contains some of the most interesting and exciting stories in the Bible. And I think you'll be interested and, and entertained by them. Uh, at least I hope you'll be entertained or, or engaged at the very least. 
But the, the reason why I, I, I want us to look at Daniel and to take a deep dive into, into this book is because it, I think it provides the, the clearest and most helpful understanding of our world today and how we as Christians engage with a culture and, and live for Christ in a culture that, that's, that's actually so uh, against the, the things that we hold dear and we hold true. I think what we have to recognize as Christians in a, in a secular world is that, is that our lives feel very much like that of, of Daniel and his fellow captors. If you don't feel that way, then I hope that our, our time in this book is going to, to uh, make you begin to feel the tensions that, that we, we probably ought to feel and that Christians have felt for, for quite a long time and the pressures to conform to, to a culture that is so distinctly hostile to the God of Scripture. And that's what we, we have before us in Daniel. It's an explicit account of what it is to live in a culture and world that is overtly hostile to the God of Scripture. And in it we learn uh, indelible truths as to how we are to conduct ourselves and, and where we are to look when we don't feel we can sing the Lord's song. And there's three things for us to see tonight as we, as we begin this series. First of all, uh, the meaning of exile. Secondly, how to live in exile. And then third, where is God in exile? So first, the, the meaning of exile. One of the, the most brutal aspects of this, of this account is here at the very beginning. Nebuchadnezzar, the, the king of Babylon, goes to, to Jerusalem and he besieges and, and captures uh, the capital of Israel. And what you should notice in verse 3 is that, that Nebuchadnezzar realizes early on that, that he, uh, occupation is not going to be sufficient, that it's going to be inc- uh, incredibly difficult to hold this city and this, this land uh, that's so far away from his kingdom. So what does he do? Well, he opts for assimilation and integration. It's brutal, really. He, he takes the, the best and brightest of the, the upper echelons, of Israelite society, and he takes them to, to train them and have them serve him in his court. And this would have a, a double effect. It would, it would not only increase the talent pool of, of the, the Babylonian king, but it would be a talent drain on the nation of Israel, and thus make the, the nation easier to keep under his control. I know uh, if someone came to, to take away our politicians and the elite in our country, uh, we probably don't think we would complain. Uh, we might be quite happy about that. But actually the, the reality is that we, we may not always like them, but we would struggle to live without some of our best and brightest. And when we stop and, and consider what the Babylonians are doing, we realize it was unbelievably cruel, especially for the ones who were taken into exile. You see, this is completely different from being a refugee who's fleeing a conflict. That would be bad enough. We see that in our own day, don't we? But, but what we're, we're talking about here are, are young people who are, who are taken away from their homes and from their families in order to, to serve the enemy who had defeated them. And the whole point of exile is to, is to erase all evidence of a, of a culture from a person. If we didn't have this record, we probably wouldn't know about what happened here. We, we see it in our own day. We've heard rumors of, of, uh, of exile in the current war in Ukraine, uh, of people being taken off to, to Russia, 
And those reports are, are always said to be unconfirmed. And quite possibly they may never be confirmed. We may never hear from those people again. And that's the brutality of exile. This particular enemy was, was especially thorough, weren't they? They took these men away and, and began the process of, of assimilating them into a pagan society. Look at, look at what they did in, first in, in verse 7. They, they gave each of them new names. And the names are particularly significant because the, the Jewish names of these, these four men reflected the God they served. El, the Hebrew name for, for God, is clearly seen in, in two of them. But the new names reflected the pagan gods of the Babylonians. And part of the thinking was that these gods had, had conquered the, the Israelite god. So why shouldn't the names of these men be changed to reflect the greater gods, the victorious gods? In our day, names are, are often less significant and, and you know, follow certain, certain trends. But we still see uh, this phenomenon in a, in a more positive way in our, in our own culture, don't we? Especially in an international city like ours. Uh, you know, I've, I've got fr- plenty of friends whose, whose real names I don't actually know. And the reason is because they're, they would be hard for me to pronounce. So uh, these friends of mine have, have taken Western names in order to, to make it easier to be friendly with a nitwit like me. And I'm thankful for that. But in Daniel's case, and in the case of his fellow exiles, they wouldn't have been thankful. They would have been humiliated. And that was in part the point. It was a stripping away of their identity. The second thing that, that the Babylonians did was they, they provided them with, with rich food. And the food of, of the king's table. It's a, it's a little bit controversial why Daniel and his friends refused the food. It could have been because uh, the food was used in, in idolatrous worship. Or it could have been that, that they looked at it as a, another temptation to, uh, to adopt a lavish lifestyle. And to love things that they weren't meant to love. To, to take on a lifestyle that was, that was foreign to them and out of accord with, with who God had called them to be. And this is where the, the brutality becomes subtle. You know, the Babylonians are smart, aren't they? They aren't trying to, to torture these men into to giving up their identity. They're trying to, to offer them the riches of, of the new identity. They're trying to, to put before them the, the beauty of, of an alternate life you know, their, their best life now is what the Babylonians are offering them. They want them to think that, that what they have to offer is better than what they left behind. And that's actually the subtle temptations of our own world that we so easily get, get drawn into, isn't it? You know, the riches of our, our Western lifestyle can entrap us. And you don't realize you're trapped until you're, you're confronted with the choices between, between standing for the truth of your faith identity or protecting your place. A simple example of that, that many of you feel in, is in your workplace and in your schools. You know, it's, it's easier to put a, is it easier to put a rainbow flag up on your desk during LGBT Pride Month than it is to do nothing and have to answer uncomfortable questions that could get you into hot water because of your faith? The third form of, of assimilation was that the, the Babylons gave them an education. The very best education on offer in the kingdom. They were taught the, the traditions, their literature, their wisdom. 
The Babylonians wanted these young men to be Babylonian. And the point is that the Babylonians wanted them to be part of their society. From the names they took right down to the food that they ate, they wanted these men to be Babylonian. They wanted to erase who they were and give them a new identity. Now, having brought up three uh, young children uh, in a nation that, that wasn't their nation of birth, I can vouch for the fact that it is uh, incredible how quickly a, a young person can integrate into a new culture. Of course, Jenny and I were, were supportive of that, and we've, we've made the UK our adopted home, and, and we've taken citizenship here, so, so that's okay. But many of us in, in this room this evening can, can relate to the fact that as, as hard as it is to fully integrate into a culture that's foreign to us, we can, we can vouch for the fact that the tools the Babylonians had at their disposal were powerful. And they would have had an influence on, on these young men. And the point that I, I want us to see and to, to understand is that as, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we are, in many ways, exiles in a hostile world that wants to see the markers of our citizenship with Christ erased. And it may not feel as, as overt as what we read here, but it, it's in, in many ways in the very air that we breathe, isn't it? When you turn on the telly or, or you go to class or, or to work, the things we hear and, and see are, are, are not neutral. We received a, an email from, from our youngest child's primary school this week uh, regarding, uh, I think it's PHSE, curriculum is that the it's those letters i'm not sure what order they go in the p is first i know that but but regarding this curriculum for for the term and, and this curriculum is, is essentially the school's plan for for teaching about relationships and suffice it to say there were there were things that we would very strongly disagree with and there was a a, a column showing whether or not uh the parents had the rights and were permitted to opt their child out of of certain sessions and not a, a single session was, was considered optional. It's part of the national curriculum. It's, it's required for all children to, to hear these things. It's in the classrooms. It's, it's in the media we consume. The books that we read. It's in the air we breathe. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? What are we to do? Am I just trying to scare you? Not at all. What I want us is for us to, to wake up to the reality of, of our, our world and to think through how we, how we live in, in such, uh, such a world as this. How would God want us to live? Well, that's actually our, our second point this evening, how, how to live in exile. Notice, notice that Daniel and these, these other young men uh, would have answered to these new names. But they never forgot who they really were. They accepted the education, but they remembered who their God was. They drew the line at eating the food, but even, even there, they, they weren't belligerent about it, were they? Rather, they, they went to the king's servant and petitioned him for a, a reasonable exception to the rules, and they won him over. Uh, by the way, we, we did joke the other night about, about this. Uh, uh, it's still worth saying, I think, but, but uh, this, this, ar- this isn't an argument, this, this food thing here is not an argument for veganism. So set your minds at ease, meat eaters. It's, it's not an argument for veganism. Sometimes people want to look into, into the details of, of a book like Daniel, and they get lost there. Uh, when actually I think the, the more powerful points are, are found in the larger picture. Daniel's eating vegetables 
uh, isn't God saying he wants you to be a vegan uh, or even a vegetarian. It's God saying he wants you to resist the temptations of worldliness. So just to clear that up. But getting back to the main point, if, if you've been around the church for any amount of time, uh, you've probably found yourself on, on the end of one of two extremes. When it, when it comes to, to how we deal with culture, there's uh, this uh, militant bunker mentality, or there's the, the open bridge builder mentality. And they, they kind of fall on two ends of a, of a spectrum. And the militant bunker mentality says, uh, we need to preserve ourselves from being integrated with the culture by withdrawing and, and as loudly as we can take take shots at anything we possibly can, anything we disagree with in the culture. We gotta we gotta we gotta blog about it. We've gotta tweet about it. We've gotta we've gotta take shots wherever we can. This mentality says that uh, that that uh, we need to protect ourselves while being the resistance. And I'm I'm going to give uh, an example here just to try and help us understand uh, what we're talking about and help us to grasp this a bit. But but let me first say. Uh, before I give this example, uh, how we educate our children is, is a personal choice. Uh, and it's a personal decision that, that Christians can make all kinds of, of reasons uh, for, for making the decisions they make. And at Grace Church, we, we, don't, we don't have a, a stance on how children should be educated. Uh, I'm more concerned that we raise our children well as, as Christ, in, in Christian homes and that we as a church properly love uh, children and help parents raise them. Uh, as Christian children. So here's the example. Often Christian parents in this militant bunker mentality think that the, the answer is, is to homeschool their kids. You know, homeschooling is, is the answer to protecting our children from, from the integration in the culture. And with some children, that, that might actually be the case. Daniel doesn't suggest that here, though, does he? He also doesn't doesn't say it's it's wrong to, to homeschool your children, but but Daniel didn't have that option. What Daniel does is he he engages with the literature, and he engages with the wisdom of this pagan kingdom, but he doesn't simply accept it at face value. And he doesn't do it for pleasure. the The way we know that 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 he doesn't just accept it at face value is that in verse seventeen through twenty one we're told that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were smarter than everyone else. And that because of that, they were, they were more useful to the king of this pagan country. People started to take notice. They were able to take the wisdom of God and apply it to the literature and wisdom of the culture that they were in. What we see here is that when you bring the light of God's truth to darkness, you, you begin to stand out, don't you? They were ten times better. I mean, that, that, that might be a slight exaggeration, but, but you get the idea. It's, it's this, this idea that, that, that they, were, they stood out so much more and so much beyond any of the other young men who were just accepting what was fed to them by this culture. The other, the other mentality common in, in the churches is the, the bridge-building mentality. It says that we need to, to find commonalities with our culture and we, uh, in, in order to win a hearing. And so we should interact with the films and, and music and literature and art and philosophy and politics in order to find common ground from which we can, we can share the gospel. It says that we should be defined by, by what we are for rather than what we're against. In some ways you, you see that here with, with Daniel and his fellow exiles. Often we like this approach though because it feels less confrontational and it, it, it can create less friction. 
and when we're getting in, in uh, when when we uh, were getting ready to to well, when we were getting ready to move this to this country, our family, uh, we were told to think through uh, how we say things, you know, building bridges. Think through how you say things. So we shouldn't imply something in our new culture is wrong because that's not going to build a bridge for you to to become friends with. You know, we weren't supposed to, to point out to you, to you kind folks that uh, things like you you drive on the wrong side of the road. We were meant to say that, that you drive on the opposite side of the road to, to us Americans. But it's just as good. It's just as good. It's, it's not, but it, yeah, it's great. But yeah, that's a, that's a silly example of, of what the problem with bridge building uh, uh, with the, the bridge building approach that I often see. And that is that we can we can quite easily pull our punches, right? We don't want to say, you know, something's the opposite or, or the something's wrong. We'll say, ah, it's, it's, it's just not this, quite the same and let's nuance it a little bit. We can become so focused on, on winning a hearing that we fear offending. And we become less thoughtful about how we how we say things that might challenge our culture. And we end up not being uh, the salt and light that we're called to be. The extreme example, uh, or the extreme danger, is that we, we find ourselves uh, loving these worldly things for their own sakes. When we seek to, to build bridges, do we, ever, do we ever find ourselves taking a bold and risky stand like Daniel does with the food? Do we have clear... Uh, red lines in our hearts and in our heads that we would refuse to cross. You see, what Daniel actually teaches us about living in exile is that the one thing you can never do is forget who you belong to. When we bunker down and take shots, we can we can get so caught up in the battle that we forget the, the bold and engaging mercy of Jesus. But when we build bridges, we can very easily find ourselves in the, the temple charging money and thus subject to the angry whips of Christ. We can't run and hide from the world because its influence is everywhere, isn't it? It's, it's in the air that we breathe. But we also cannot be uncritical consumers of our culture. If we're going to live and survive in exile, then we, then we have to every single day that we walk this broken and barren land is square ourselves with who we love and where we truly belong. We have to be honest with ourselves about where our citizenship ultimately lies. Uh, St. Clair Ferguson says of, of this passage that, that it should cause us to ask ourselves each day a fundamental question. Am I living for the city of God and according to its code of conduct? Or am I living according to the bylaws of the city of destruction? Who we love and where we belong actually leads to a, a most fundamental question, and it, it's actually our third point this evening. Where is God in exile? That's the, the question that's been hanging in the air, isn't it, since, since we, we read this passage at the very start of the sermon. And I hope you notice that, that he was and is absolutely everywhere. In this first chapter of Daniel, he's absolutely everywhere, including verse 2 when he was the one who, who gave Jerusalem into the hands of the wicked king Nebuchadnezzar. God's there when Daniel needs favor from the king's official to not eat the food offered to them. God's there when, when they needed wisdom and great learning. God's, God's everywhere 
where his people need him. Whether in the easy places of promise or in the, the trials of exile, God is faithful in blessings and chastisement. He's, he's, he's faithful in blessings and chastisements. We tend, though, to only want the blessings, don't we? And the one thing we must never tell anyone, and the one thing we must never believe ourselves, is that, that the Christian life is easy. On this side of eternity, we, we are in exile from our true home. And we feel the pressures of that every single day. But the one thing we should, we should never feel or believe is that we have been abandoned by God. You see, if Daniel teaches us one thing, it's that God was there and in complete sovereign control. <clears throat> and God is here with us today. And he is in complete sovereign control. And the fair and honest question most of us have on our minds when we read this is, if God was there, then why would he allow Jerusalem to fall? Why would he allow his people to be taken into captivity by this, this hostile nation? and be taken into exile to be erased. Why would he allow that to happen? And the answer is a, a difficult one, but in, in part it's, it's because his people had forgotten him, and they weren't honoring and, and glorifying him as, as he commanded and deserved. They were people who, who, who had, had become defined by idolatry and by their sin. And they stand as a warning to us to, to guard our own hearts against idolatry and sin, which so easily entangles us. The other reason is because he loves his people, and he loves to refine us and sanctify us. And he, he can take even the, the struggles and the hardships and the brokenness of exile under a pagan and secular world and bring glory for himself and, and goodness and mercy to those he loves. Even in exile, he can take our sins from us and make us his pure and holy people. And that's what we see in Daniel. We see a God who is not always loud and doesn't always look like he's winning, but, but who through providence and, and sometimes through incredible and, and miraculous circumstances, he cares for and protects his people. He uses the trials and temptations of our, of our lives and our world in order to, to refine us and test us and, and make us holy, to conform us more and more into his image. That's a God that's, that's worth singing about, isn't it? Even in the land of captivity. Especially for us as his church, because we know the fullness of, of his salvation and of the promises of God kept in Christ Jesus our Savior. I'll close with, with this from Sinclair Ferguson. He says, Jesus, Jesus himself is the great illustration of this principle of the love of God towards refining his people. Jesus' whole life was a, a period of testing and temptation. As he continued to withstand pressures, his human character was developed so that he might be the kind of savior we need. In the same way God invests in our lives, in order to make us strong and useful. No piece of equipment is fit for use unless it has been tested. The same is true of the citizens of the kingdom of God. Let us pray.